The Eagle and Child, Episode 4. Mere Christianity, Book 1, Chapter 2. Hello, and welcome to The Eagle and Child, the hallowed pub of the Inklings. This is a podcast where each week my friend Matt and I share a beer and discuss the writings of the author known to the world as Clive Staples Lewis, or C.S. Lewis, or Jack to his friends. My name is David, and today in the podcast we're going to continue working through mere Christianity, moving on to chapter two. And as always, I'm joined by my C.S. Lewis fan, Matt. Thank you, David. And today it's going to be fun because we're going to go into the objections. And so as we talked about last time, we laid the foundation in chapter one of the moral argument. There's sometimes confusion, and actually Lewis writes in the beginning of this chapter that he received a lot of feedback in response to that first chapter because it was, remember, if you remember, these talks were given on the air. And so he got feedback from it, and then when he gave the next one... He got letters back. Yeah. This, yeah. Is, what, this is what people did before the days of Twitter. And actually, on that point, if anything we're going through, you have questions, you disagree, please tweet us at Pints with Jack. You don't even have to write a letter. You don't even have to buy a stamp. It's so easy. Mm-hmm. No excuses. No excuses. So anyways, that's what we'll be doing today. Excellent. Well, on the past few episodes, we were working our way through a six-pack of Blue Moon. And now we're on to a beer from Holland, a lager, Heineken. So, cheers. Cheers. Now, as I just said, in Chapter 2, Jack outlines objections which might be raised in response to his assertions that there is a moral law of which we fall short. But I want to take a step back before going into these objections. Where is this in the bigger picture? So essentially, we have presented this moral law. At no point has it been pointing to a God yet or not a God. Although the Christians listening know this is where this is going. The atheists know it as well. Yep. But at the end of the day, the next question to get to what David just alluded to is we need to be able to answer Does this come from something beyond us? Or is this really just something that we created, invented, social convention? And so, in essence, what we're going to do today is there's going to be three different objections answering the question of, is this something that we created? Or something natural. Yes. Something natural or something supernatural, something beyond the, the facts of this world. I like that. Natural or supernatural. So the first objection is, isn't what you call the moral law simply our herd instinct. Now, Jack responds by saying that he doesn't deny that we have a herd instinct, but that a herd instinct is not the same thing as a moral law. He says we all know what it's like to be prompted by an instinct, whether it's love of your country, sexual instinct, hunger, the desire for food. He says that this is a strong desire and we know how it acts within us. He says that sometimes we do have a great desire to help another person, And that probably comes in large part from the herd instinct. But he offers a number of rebuttals to this idea. So in the first rebuttal, he explains that instincts tell us what we want to do. The moral law tells us what we ought to do. And you're going to be hearing that word ought again and again in the coming chapters as we talk about this moral law. He explains that feeling a desire to help is quite different from feeling that you ought to help whether you actually want to or not. He explains that the moral law judges between instincts, and he demonstrates this with a hypothetical example. He says, suppose you hear the cry of a man in danger. You'll actually probably have two desires that will come up within you. On the one hand, you'll have a desire to help, 
which can be due to your herd instinct. But he says that you'll also have another desire within you, the desire for self-preservation, to stay out of danger, to not jump into the lake that someone's fallen into, to jump onto the train tracks and pull somebody away from an oncoming train. You have these two instincts inside you. But he says that you've actually got a third thing. And this third thing says that you ought to follow one impulse and not the other, that you ought to help rather than run away. Lewis just explains very logically that the thing that is judging between these two instincts, the one that is choosing one and not the other, it can't actually be an instinct itself. And in the previous episode, I mentioned that there are a number of different metaphors and analogies that Lewis is fond of. And here he uses one that he uses again and again, this idea of music. He says that if you're going to say that the moral law is just another instinct, you might as well say that the sheet of music which tells you at one moment or another to play one note and not another is itself one of the notes on the keyboard. And that obviously can't be. If we were looking for a more perfect analogy, we would say that the moral law tells us the tune we have to play. It's the music. And our instincts are merely the keys that play that music. Lewis's second rebuttal takes the assumption that what if there is no third thing? Okay, let's, just, let's take for truth that this herd instinct is actually what there is. And he goes, okay, if that's the case, if two instincts are in conflict and there is nothing in a creature's mind, meaning there is no moral law, except those two instincts, obviously the stronger of the two must win. And must always win. Always. Because there's nothing judging the two. So a stronger instinct is going to win. But at those moments when we're most conscious of the moral law, it usually seems to be telling us to side with the weaker of the two impulses. And isn't that always true? It is. You're, you're like, I don't really, I, I say this sentence all the time. I don't really want to do this, but I know I'm supposed to. Like that goes through my head all the time. Mm-hmm. And so I, that's what he's talking about. The moral law, it usually seems to be telling us to side with the weaker of the two impulses. Going back to the analogy that David talked about earlier, you probably want to be safe much more than you want to actually help a drowning person. Yeah, I'm, I might die. He could push me under. Yeah. I mean, that, that's what's going through my mind. But the moral law tells you to help him all the same. And surely, it often tells us to try to make the right impulse stronger than it naturally is. And this is something that I really recognize whenever I'm struggling with a decision or a choice, that when I know that I probably should help, I ought to help, but I don't really want to, that my conscience, the, the moral law, tells me that I need to do something with these two competing instincts. Yeah, there's something inside of you that's bumping up one and putting down the other. It's like awakening this thing inside of you. And Lewis puts it really... And, and, and telling you that you should do that, that yes. you yourself should encourage it. Yes. And Lewis puts it really nicely when he says, the thing that says to you exactly what we're talking about, your herd instinct is asleep. Wake it up. Canonic self be the herd instinct. The thing that tells you which note on the piano needs to be played louder cannot itself be that note. The, the image that I often think of when I read that section is a sports team just as they're about to go out on the big game. What are they doing? They're trying to psych each other up. Mm-hmm. They're trying to get lots of energy so that they can then explode out onto the field. I like that. Jack explains that the moral law can't just be another instinct. Otherwise, we should be able to identify an instinct that is always in agreement with the rule of right behavior, that there is always going to be this instinct which will always be the right choice to make. But he makes the point that that's just not the case. That's not how it works. 
he says that sometimes we have to suppress some instincts, what you were just saying, and sometimes we have to build up others and encourage others. But there is no instinct that we must universally encourage. Because if the moral law was one of those instincts, that would be the one that we should always encourage. In a conflict, that's the one that should always win. But that's not the case. I mean, we sometimes think of um, instincts towards anger or sex or fighting. These are bad. But he explains they're not really bad. They're just the ones that we more often than not actually have to dial down. Those are the ones that we more often need to control. That sometimes we actually should nurture our sex instinct. Sometimes we should nurture our fighting instinct. And even what most people would call good instincts, sometimes we actually have to shut them down. If a mother wants her children to flourish, she has to be willing to be a little less protective of them so that they can go out into the world and encounter troubles and overcome them themselves. That's how they become full-grown, well-balanced human beings. And so he says, strictly speaking, there's no such thing as good and bad impulses. And this idea is going to repeat in the book a few times, when, particularly when we talk about the idea of good and evil, that evil badness isn't actually such a thing. It's more of a perversion. It's a twisting. It's seeking a good thing, but in the wrong way and at the wrong time. And once again, coming back to this idea of music, he says, the moral law tells us the tune we have to play. Our instincts are merely the keys. A piano has not got two kinds of notes in it, the right notes and the wrong notes. There is none of our impulses which the moral law will not sometimes tell us to suppress, and none which it may not sometimes tell us to encourage. There's this last point that Lewis makes in this section before going on to the second objection, where he says, and this is a plug to the great divorce, he goes, the most dangerous thing you can do is to take any one impulse of your own nature and set it up as a thing that you ought to follow at all costs. There's not one of them which will not make us into devils if we set it up as an absolute guide. So essentially, it's assuming that you have this impulse or this instinct that's always good. You must always follow it. No, and that's what, what's fascinating is going back to that analogy of the piano and the moral law being the sheet that tells you when to play which notes. That's the beauty of the moral law. It... it prevents us from having that danger happen, which today you see it in society so often we lift up certain things. And it becomes the absolute. It becomes the absolute, and it is so dangerous. And so I like how Lewis says it turns us into devils. I think what he means by that is it's, he's using harsh language to describe the danger of it. If you read The Great Divorce, every chapter in The Great Divorce is another example of a person doing something that on the surface might seem great. Mm -hmm. Like there's a chapter on a mother who loves her son so much. Problem is, though, she puts it so high that motherly love trumps her love for God. And even for her son. And because of that, Lewis makes the case, not that she's being sent to hell, but she won't even accept heaven. Because she can't accept a place where that love is not the absolute. Returning to the music example, C-sharp is a wonderful note. But there are times when you shouldn't play it. Yes. It's going to sound terrible. And speaking a little personally, one of, the, one of the things that I've really had to learn in, say, the last 10 years of my adult life is, say, the idea of loving somebody. For the longest time, I thought that loving somebody just meant keeping them happy. But over recent years, I've seen that that's very often not the most loving thing to do. If somebody is hurting themselves, 
It's a loving thing to try and stop them, to try and talk them out of it. If somebody has a part of their character that is really hurting them and hurting other people, it's a loving thing to confront them about it, obviously in a loving way. But for too long, I thought that to love somebody just meant to be laissez-faire, to give them a blank check. Now that seemed like a very good thing, but it doesn't actually truly meet its end. It doesn't actually love them. You, I don't actually end up loving them in the end. The great Fulton Sheen put this nicely. I'm probably 80% quoting him, but <laughs> he said, to love someone is not to wish them wealth, health, and happiness, which is kind of what you're saying. Mm -hmm. It's to do tough love from time to time. Mm -hmm. It's to say the thing that they need to hear that they don't want to hear. St. Thomas Aquinas describes love as willing the good of the other as other. Yes. Willing somebody's good, not necessarily their current happiness. And I think parents understand this as they're raising children, that sometimes the loving thing to do is to say no to a child. Yes. Now, the one final point I'd say to listeners is you have to be prudent when you do this. Oh, yes. This because <laughs> Go and tell all of your friends all of their faults. They will really appreciate exactly. it. Exactly. Because you have to remember that we... Every single one of us is sinning too. So it has to be done with an extreme gentleness and extreme charity. doesn't mean avoid it, but I, I, someone was telling me this. I think it was actually Pope Benedict that wrote about this. He said, when you are trying to help someone who's struggling in sin, you need to look at it as there's a rock they're getting over. You're helping them. You put your hand backwards to help them over that rock. But you both have miles to go to the top. Mm -hmm. You can't look at it as you're at the top of this mountain <laughs> throwing a ladder down to someone I'm up here already, I'll help you get up here. That is not the right way to look at it because that assumes you are perfect or way better than them. It's just this little rock that's like two feet to get over and you both have miles to go and you can help each other. You do it that way, I think you have a lot better chance of not repelling someone away from faith. And we began last episode with a correction, so my humility is obviously doing really well at the moment. <laughs> well, bringing it back to... Chapter two, the second objection. So we just went through the first objection. We provided three rebuttals to this idea of herd instinct. Is that what we're talking about? No. Objection two says, well, okay, isn't what we've been calling the moral law just social convention, something that is put into us by education or something we learn? Well, being taught something doesn't automatically mean what you're being taught is a convention. When you're taught mathematics, that doesn't make it any less true. This has been something that's been truth. Of course, you're taught it at some point. Okay, but now let's look at a social convention. A social convention that's created by society is more like, okay, in England, we drive on the left side of the road. Like all sensible people. Sure. <laughs> in America, we drive on the right side of the road. No comment. Which is very sensible because, you know, we're all right-handed, right-dominant with our eyes. Makes sense. Do you actually know where the left-handed driving comes from? Not a clue. So it was back in the days when people had horses and swords, and you would ride on the left side of the road so that you could draw your sword and fight off somebody who was coming in the other direction. Ah, so what you're saying is you're stuck in the old times. I'm just saying that we should bring back swords. <laughs> if, if with every driving, if ever, you know, quite literally, if with every driving license you were also given a sword, I would absolutely be in favor of us uh, <laughs> having sword fights on the highway. I think that'd be great. I love it. I never knew that. So listeners, you got something new today. Essentially, what we're trying to figure out then is, is the law of human nature, this social convention, something that's created, 
or is it an actual truth? The fact it's been taught to us doesn't actually distinguish that. So we need to ask that. Is it like mathematics or is it like driving on one side of the road? One of the things that I think is very popular today is to never say that one culture is better than another mm -hmm. or one system is better than another. Again, it's just all this subjectivism. It's like what's good for you is good for you. What's good for me is good for me. It's not any better. It's not any worse. But in a very similar way that we said that someone who denies that real truth exists, they'll betray themselves by the way they speak. They will, they will, they will tell you that it's not fair before it's Jack Robinson if you wrong them. In a similar way, don't we really believe that some cultures and therefore some moralities are better than others? Because if we don't think that's possible, if we don't think that the morality in one place or one time is better than another, we actually can never make any progress. And it forces us to say very silly things if we try and really stick to that. Because we're saying that, well, Nazi morality is no better than Christian morality, which is no better than Spartan morality. But we know in the depths of our heart that that's just not true. We say some of these moralities are better than others. And this feeds into an argument that Jack is going to use later when he talks about the straightness of a line. If we can say one line is straighter than another, it implies that there is a standard against which it's being measured. Likewise, if we say that one morality is better than another morality, there has to be some standard for us to be able to say this one is better. Now, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Could your standard be something subjective, but like, all right, Nazi morality is worse than ours, not because there's some real truth, but because I believe happiness, freedom, live your life as you want to, are important values to be living by. Our system is a lot better at that than theirs is. And so I'm not comparing it to some objective truth, but just through conversation and belief, I'm like, okay, it's, that doesn't look as good though. The problem is that it's based on the set of axioms you outlined at the beginning, what you thought had value. And the trouble is, is if there is no moral law, if there is nothing transcendent, then that's just your opinion. So this connects to what he was saying earlier that I can go to war against you mm -hmm. because I want to put mine on yours, my value on yours, but I can't actually blame you for what you believe. Exactly. The question I always ask atheists and those who believe in moral relativism, I'm going to violate Godwin's law here. Was what Hitler did wrong? Or can you only say you don't like it? And like the moral argument, I think it's powerful because it, causes us to have to really look deep inside ourselves. And if we are really going to say that what Hitler did wasn't wrong, it wasn't evil, it, we just don't like it, that places ourselves in a place we really don't like. It means that all I can say is, it's not wrong to torture babies. I just don't like it. I don't think it's good for the flourishing of society as I see flourishing. And say for particularly the Nazis eugenics program, isn't there an argument that we can say that society as a whole will be better, utilitarianism, if we get rid of the old and the weak? Why should we be pouring all of this money and all these resources into supporting those who have disabilities, who are old, who are taking up all of this money and time? Surely, if I believe that what really matters, and this is my founding principle, this axiom that I'm going to base everything else off, if I believe that the best thing is the net benefit for everybody, then it is right to kill a child in a wheelchair. It is right to put down somebody with autism. 
I never thought of that. It takes us to very scary places, very scary places. And I think this is the strength of the moral argument. In those quiet moments where we really think through the consequences of what we are really saying, something within us just rebels. As I was trying to play mini devil's advocate, I felt myself having to think ahead of the words I was going to use because I was going to betray myself just with the words. And at one point I wanted to say, but I believe that's wrong. And then immediately my brain said, well, David's going to ask me, well, why do you believe that? Mm-hmm. And then you're going, to, you're going to get down this rabbit hole. Well, honestly, something inside of me just tells me that's not correct. Yeah. You either have to deny your heart or your head, everything that yourself is screaming at you. That yeah. This is right. This is wrong. And we now come to objection number three. Lewis had someone write to him and say, 300 years ago, people in England were putting witches to death. Was that what you call the rule of human nature or right conduct? This is actually a really interesting point when I was reading it. I enjoyed it, so I'm excited to hear what you say. Lewis explains that there's a difference between belief about facts and belief about morality. And so he says that the reason we don't put witches to death anymore is we don't think that they exist. This is pushing aside people who claim to be Wiccan. I'm just not even touching that. (laughs) He says... If we did, if we really thought that there were people going around who sold themselves to the devil and received supernatural powers from him in return and used these powers to kill their neighbors or drive them mad or bring bad weather, then surely we would all agree that if anyone deserved the death penalty, then these filthy quizlings did. He's saying that if we really thought witches were things, of course we would kill them. But the difference here is not that of a moral principle. It's simply about a matter of fact We don't believe witches exist, so therefore we don't kill them. But if they did exist, then we would. He says, there would be no moral advance in not executing them when we don't think they're there. And I love his comparison. He said, you would not call a man humane for ceasing to set mousetraps if he did so because he believed that there were no mice in the house. (laughs) And I have another example that I thought of when I was reading this, which I think can help because it's a little bit more contemporary. In India, they don't eat cows. But in America, we do, especially in Texas and in great quantities. The morality between those two countries is actually the same. Don't eat your ancestors. But the difference is the respective understandings of reality. In India, they believe that cows are their ancestors, whereas in America, we don't. So it's the same moral principle, but what causes us to act differently is our different understanding of reality. That's a good analogy. Well, I think it's last call time. And I don't know about you, but your last point really put me in the mood for a hamburger. I'm going to pick one up on the way home. Yeah. Uh, As always in the show notes, I'll include my notes and quotes for chapter two. And unfortunately, there isn't a C.S. Lewis doodle for this chapter. But don't worry, there will be some in future episodes. I have officially now seen my first C.S. Lewis doodle. And I cannot tell you how long I have to imagine it takes him to actually draw all those things. Incredible. So if you take a look at it, it's worth it. But it's really helpful in understanding the argument and remembering it as well, because you now have images that you can associate with the text. Yeah, it's funny you say that. I can pull some images to my mind. So please like, share, and subscribe. Write us reviews and ratings on iTunes, Google Play. And And remember, every time you, you like us, write us a review, you're evangelizing. Because that gets it closer to getting out to other people. Exactly. 
And please write to us on the website, restlesspilgrim.net, and tweet us at Pints with Jack. We love the tweets. Mm-hmm. So let's do the sign-off. Further up. And further in. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>